Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Good morning, Nathan Braun. Good morning, everyone else. And happy President's Day to you all. Now listen, I know that in all of the public schools and uh, you know governmental offices and things, they get the day off. But here at Emmaus, we think it is important to remember past presidents by having a full day of classes. <laughs> so I want to begin by just reading a few thought-provoking quotations from U.S. presidents of years gone by. Any man worth his salt will stick up for what he believes is right, but it takes a slightly better man to acknowledge instantly and without reservation that he is in error. Andrew Jackson. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. In this life, we get nothing Saved by effort. Theodore Roosevelt. Here's one I think you'll like. Collecting more taxes than is absolutely necessary is legalized robbery. Calvin Coolidge, 30th president. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves and under a just God, cannot long retain it. Abraham Lincoln. Lyndon B. Johnson said, a president's hardest task is not to do what is right, but to know what is right. Can we take a moment just to pray for our president, for President Biden? Will you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we left up to you our president this morning, the president of the United States of America. We ask that you would help him to know what is right and to be able to act on what is right. Father, we pray that you would give him good and godly influences in his life, that you would, by your spirit, draw him to yourself. And that as he seeks to lead this nation, he would realize and understand his leadership position is one that is ultimately derivative of your authority. We pray your blessing on our president. We pray, again, that you would show yourself to him, draw him close to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. One more presidential quotation pertinent to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Woodrow Wilson, 28th president, said this, You are not here merely to make a living. You are here in order to enable the world to live more amply, with greater vision, with a finer spirit of hope and achievement. You are here to enrich the world, and you impoverish yourself 
if you forget the errand. Wilson's words convey the heart of our passage here in Hebrews chapter 10. With great power comes great responsibility. Listen, the phrase does not originate with Uncle Ben's words to Peter Parker in the Marvel's comics of the 1960s and 1970s. It is evident, you may not be aware of this, but it is evident as early as the 4th century B.C. in the legend of the Sword of Damocles. I am not going to illustrate the Sword of Damocles this morning because Damocles went to the king Dionysius and said, you know, started pandering to him. You're so great. You're so wonderful, king. You've, you're so fortunate. And the king says, okay, thank you. That's great. That's wonderful. Would you like to trade places with me for the day? And Damocles said, oh, yes, I would. And so Damocles was given all of the prestige and all of the honor and all of the glory of King Dionysius. But Dionysius did one thing. He took a sword and hung it by a horse's hair above Damocles' head because he wanted him to appreciate how the, the full weight of the office of king. And the legend goes that Damocles was not actually impaled by the sword. That would be a really grotesque end to the story. But after serving in his position with all of the wealth and all of the power that went with it, he finally said to Dionysus, take it back. It's unnerving to just have a sword hanging above my head all the time. And the king was attempting to illustrate with great power comes great responsibility. Jesus himself seems to acknowledge the same principle in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In these verses, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25, we read about both the ways that we have been equipped for service, but also the responsibility that we now have for that equipping. Let's look at our equipment first in verses 19 through 21. We read there again, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. These are ways in which we have been equipped by God. Since these things are true, he says, we have, first of all, confidence in verse 19. Confidence to enter the holy place. We have assurance. The sacrifice of Jesus gives us assurance before God. Where our sin formerly condemns us before God, the blood of Jesus acquits us so that there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 and verse 1. Not only do we have assurance before God our Father, we have access. I'm going to use all A's for these three things. We have confidence to enter the holy place. We have 
assurance, and we have access to God the Father. We have the ability to come before God. You know, this is something that in the Old Testament believers did not have and would have longed to have, an ongoing access to the throne room and therefore the presence of God. This access was obtained, we read, by the new and living way that Christ opened for us through the curtain of his flesh. It is the torn curtain, not of the temple, that gives us access to the presence of God, as if God were forced to reside in a building made with human hands. No, it is the torn curtain of Jesus' broken body that provides us with direct access to God the Father through the once-for-all vicarious sacrifice of the crucified and risen Christ. God has equipped us, then, with confident assurance that we've been restored to a right relationship with God the Father through Christ, and he has equipped us with access to the throne of God through the torn veil of Jesus' flesh. Third, in verse 21, we see that we have an advocate. That's the third A. Assurance, access, and advocate. Christ himself serves as a priest forever, interceding on our behalf before God the Father. He himself is not only the offering for sin, but he is also our priest who advocates on our behalf when we sin. He lives forever and always works as a priest, whatever time of day or season of the year it might be. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God has equipped us not only with assurance before him, and access to him, but also with an advocate, a defense attorney seated alongside him who prays and intercedes for us when we sin. Now, we have been, since we have been equipped in these three ways, we go on to read in verses 22 through 25, there are a number of opportunities, responsibilities, for followers of Christ. You'll notice here, this is fancy language, but the indicatives are the basis for the imperatives. In other words, what we read in verses 19 through 21, what is true of us, what has been done on our behalf, becomes the basis for what we read as our responsibilities, commands to us what we have the opportunity to do. And there are three things here. First, in verse 22, the author says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, if we have access to God the Father, what should we do with that access? We should approach God the Father. We should draw near to him with confidence, entering his presence 
as those made righteous by the blood of Christ. The way for us to enter his presence has been made for us by Christ himself through his death. But what good is it if we have access to God the Father and confidence before the Father if we never take the opportunity to come near to the Father? We have to hear from God through his word and respond to him in prayer. This is the way that we commune with God. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says this. Some prayers in the Bible are like an intimate conversation with a friend. Others like an appeal to a great monarch. And others approximate a wrestling match. Why? In every case, the nature of prayer is determined by the character of God, who is at once our friend, father, lover, shepherd, and king. We must not decide how to pray based on what types of prayer are the most effective for producing the experience and feelings that we might want. We pray in response to God himself. God's word to us contains this range of discourse, and only if we respond to his word will our own prayer life be as rich and varied. What is preventing you and I, from drawing near to God today. You know, Christ died to give us access to the Father. And if we fail to approach him, ultimately, we do a disservice, a dishonor to the sacrifice of our Savior. He has paved the way for us to come. Why don't we just come? Why don't we draw near? Second, Verse 23, we are told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, we should cling to the confession of our hope. I know I'm getting away from all A's here. We should abide in, hold fast to the confession of our hope, knowing that God is preserving our eternal lives. What is this confession of our hope? The word that's used for hope in the New Testament is not one of hope without knowledge, as in, boy, I hope the sun comes out in a little while today, or I hope we have Chinese for lunch. I have no idea what we're having for lunch today. That is hope without knowledge. That sense of hope that is so commonly used in our world today has no real knowledge of what will transpire. The New Testament usage of the term elpis in Greek is that of certainty and expectation. The Christian's hope is the glorious return of Christ and the culmination of our salvation. It is eternal life in resurrected glory reigning with Christ and experiencing the fullness of joy in his presence forevermore. And this is what we need to cling to. This is the focus that grounds us. We must hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. The answer to every doubt that we might encounter in the Christian life is the trustworthy character 
of God. And we read about God's character as it is articulated in his word. He who promised, that is God, is faithful. He is true. He is unchanging. So holding fast to our confession of hope practically looks like taking God at his word and clinging to his promises as given in Scripture. Third, we are to, the author says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Now, there are really two facets, I think, to this term here, consider. First, we should think about how we, use our, how we can use our giftedness to get others in the body of Christ fired up to perform acts of love and good works. In this regard, we ought to be scheming, pondering, planning, plotting ways that we can show love to one another within the body of Christ and display that love externally outside the body of Christ. After all, what are good works in the life of a believer but a physical demonstration of the love of Jesus? The good deeds of a genuine follower of Christ are done not out of a sense of duty or for spiritual gain, but rather from an overabundance of gratitude for the love shown to us by our Savior. These could be called perhaps proactive or premeditated acts of love and good works. We think about them and plan them out in advance. An illustration of this might be church leaders or elders who actually call up members of the congregation to ask them for prayer requests, how, how things are going in their lives, spending time praying with them, but this is intentional. Perhaps it's some, and I know uh, instances of this, after a snowfall, some members of a local church might take up the directory of the church and look for some of the elderly people in that directory, go to their houses and plow their snow for them. These are proactive acts for others within the body of Christ. The term can also have the sense not just of consideration, but of observation. Not just contemplation, but perception. We should then observe or look for or notice ways to stimulate one another in the body of Christ toward love and good works. When we observe ways within the body of Christ that we can spur one another on to love, we are reacting to felt or noticed needs within our local churches. Perhaps we could term these reactive good works. We see someone hurting or in need, and we respond in love, and it causes our own love to increase. I remember years ago, uh, when Asher and Lillian were born, one of the ways that our local church really blessed us during that time was to really, I mean, unaware, un unbeknownst to us, they had planned to bring us meals for the week. 
that's a big deal for a couple that just has a child and, you know, is kind of learning how to take care of that child. It's sort of an all-consuming thing. And to have something simple like a meal taken care for you really blessed us. In fact, I remember Janelle personally was so blessed by that. And she said to me afterwards, I want to be involved in that ministry. I want to do that for other people because I was so blessed by that. I want to be able to bless other people that way also. And those sort of uh, reactive good works to seeing needs within our local bodies of believers can stir our hearts to more love and more good works. Now, in verse 25, we are given two explanations of how we can stir up one another to love and good works. One is negative and one is positive. Negatively, in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This is what you should not do if you're wanting to stir up one another to love and good works. Don't stop meeting together. Don't cut yourself off from the body of Christ, cutting yourself off, isolating yourself from other believers is never the right solution to any problem. Now, I know, I know, I know. I've been hurt by the local church, you might be thinking. Or you don't know what that person said to me. I know what people in local churches say. I've had things said to me in the local church setting, and it can sting. And it can hurt. Listen to me. Running away isn't going to solve the problem. I mean, isn't that like the basis of every Disney movie, guys? <laughs> Running away doesn't solve anything. Yes, the church is imperfect. And yes, sometimes people in the church can act in ways that are very contrary to the character of Christ. But that does not give us an excuse to cut ourselves off from the local church. That's the negative side. Positively, we are told, instead, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I am convinced that encouragement is something that is greatly lacking in the body of Christ today. We have an overabundance of criticism and next to no edification. This is actually, I think, a very serious problem in the church. Even our joking, our joking around with others sometimes is just littered with critical sarcasm that's just downright mean. Why would we needlessly want to tear one another down? This is such a problem that when someone does actually try to build another person up in the body of Christ with their words, oftentimes we don't know how to receive this edification. It just feels awkward that someone said something nice to us or gave us some kind of positive feedback. Let me give you a little encouragement toward encouragement today. Some simple things that you and I might try, even today. Give a thoughtful compliment or a word of encouragement to someone. I appreciated your question in Old Testament survey this morning. 
Your floor devotion, what you had to say, made me stop and think. Give some positive feedback in your words. Pray for someone or with someone or ask someone how you can be praying for them. Share with someone what you've learned from the word recently. I, this, is, this is just completely crazy. I know, I don't, this might be revolutionary. What if, what if at lunch today, we just, we took these things and we just slipped them right in here. Just pocketed them, you know. And instead of at lunch looking at our cell phones or talking about the weather, or do, we actually think about and consider ways to encourage one another. What if we intentionally sought to build someone up? You can use prompts like, what's the Lord been teaching you today? Or, where have you met Christ through his word today? What's one thing that you learned in one of your classes about your heavenly father today? It doesn't need to be a big ordeal or a weird to-do. Really, this should be part of our average everyday conversation with one another. And we are to do this all the more as we see the day approaching. The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any moment. If you and I really believe that, then we should be about the work of Christ and building up his church and stirring up one another to love and good works for the advancement of his gospel and the expansion of his church. Listen again to the words of our 28th president, Woodrow Wilson. You are not here merely to make a living. You are not here in order to enable the world to live, uh, I'm sorry, you are here in order to enable the world to live more amply, with greater vision, with a finer spirit of hope and achievement. You are here to enrich the world and you impoverish yourself if you forget that errand. God has equipped, equipped us greatly for service to him. We, however, do ourselves and the body of Christ a great disservice if we do not draw near to God and hold fast to his word as we seek to perceive ways to stir one another up to loving good works. Don't waste your Christian lives serving without the closeness of God's presence and the confidence of faith that comes from close communion with him. In your service to the church and the world, draw near to God. Cling to his word. Learn to commune with him. God doesn't want your relationship with him as that of a slave who considers him your, your tyrant. No, he wants a relationship with you where you are his willing servant, expressing your gratitude to him through a life of demonstrated love and good works. May this be true of us this day.
and every day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would remove any barriers in our minds, in our hearts, that prevent us from drawing near to yourself through your word and through communion with you in prayer. We pray, Father, that we might cling to your word, hold fast to the hope, the promises that you've given to us through your word of eternal life, our eternal security, being in your presence and experiencing the fullness of joy one day. And that as we serve, we would serve out of this closeness, this intimate relationship with you, that it would be just the overflowing of the love and joy of our hearts and of our lives, that it would pour out in our speech, that this would be what we want to talk with other people about. Lord, your word says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We ask that this would be true in each of our lives as we seek to serve you, pouring ourselves out for your glory and your honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.